Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with researchers to learn how science impacts our everyday lives. I'm Bethany Gaffey, a graduate student in fisheries and aquatic sciences at the University of Florida. You're currently listening to an episode from our series titled AI in Action, where we explore scientists' latest research and how AI is changing the nature of science. AI development is said to be the fourth industrial revolution of the world. The research explored in this series spans disciplines from data science to health to cybersecurity to agriculture and more. This episode was made in partnership with the University of Florida's Department of Agricultural Education and Communication, the UF-IFAS Dean of Research Office, and UF's AI Strategic Initiative. In the following interview, I spoke with Matthew Richardson, a PhD student in the Department of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at the University of Florida. Matthew used machine learning during his master's on wetlands and rivers, and will be applying AI to the water quality portion of his current dissertation on oyster reef restoration. Through this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Matt's studies, the role of AI in research and industry, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to create new and unique solutions to address current global issues. Let's dive in. Matt, do you mind giving us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in these topics and this field in general? Yeah, sure. Let me see. So I got my bachelor's in biology with a minor in fisheries and aquatic sciences from UF uh, back in 2018. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I started out as an engineering major. I've always been more into math and stuff. And um, I eventually found out about like stock assessment and, you know, making quantitative models, to, like model populations. And I was like, this is kind of my jam. Uh, I, I kind of get this. So I applied to a bunch of master's programs, didn't really have a lot of field experience or anything like that. So uh, only got a couple replies back, um, but I ended up going to a small school in Arkansas, University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And there I kind of worked on a project that was more of an economics-based project. So it was the monetary value of wetlands restored under this um, natural resource conservation service program. And so we kind of used some AI there, which I guess I'll talk about in a little bit. But, you know, I found it interesting that they could take this land that was used to be a wetland. They turned it into farmland in like the 1800s, and now they're returning them back to wetlands. And so I found the idea of restoration kind of cool. Um, when I was applying for PhD programs, I saw that they were doing oyster reef restoration, which is, you know, a similar thing, taking a system that's been degraded in some way and turning it into more of like a natural system and, you know, kind of bringing it back to its glory days. So I think that's all a really cool application of, you know, these types of models. I actually grew up in South Florida myself, so I was around the Everglades and around a lot of these aquatic ecosystems. And now that I've been in school it seems like restoring Florida's native or natural state is a huge goal. So I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit. How would you describe what a wetland is to someone who's like never seen one before? A wetland is an area that's wet some of the time. You know, if you want to get into like the real scientific definition of it, it's a area where it's inundated. So just covered in water and that level of inundation kind of tells you what type of wetland it is. There's a lot of different types of wetland, and it's really just defined by how much water is there, where the water comes from, and how long it stays. So I'm familiar with oyster reefs, for example, having a job of filtering water as it moves through the system and moves to the reef. Would you say that a wetland has a similar ecosystem role where it's kind of filtering the water that's moving through it before it reaches the coast? Yeah, I would definitely say they have that job, especially coastal wetlands. But even like 
for groundwater recharge. You know, you have a river that floods and that water kind of moves out the sides of the river into the floodplain where there's these wetlands that have all these plants that, you know, will use the nutrients in the water and then that any excess water kind of just drains into the soil and then, you know, goes to aquifers and things. So wetlands are kind of known as like nature's kidneys. It's like the thing some people describe it as they they filter out a lot of nutrients as well as they uh, help provide services with the plant roots will actually like keep the sediment from moving around. So if you have like a huge flood, it can kind of stop that flood from washing, um, you know, all the soil away. I really like the analogy of nature's kidneys. I think that really helps you visualize, you know, what they're doing. And ecosystem services is a really big buzzword in wildlife ecology, but I feel like people don't necessarily know what that means. Is it more what this ecosystem is doing for the environment, or does it also affect people living in the area and people using that environment recreationally? Yeah, so an ecosystem service is really just anything that the ecosystem provides. My master's was economics focused, so I'll use kind of the buzzwords from there. But essentially, there's like the monetary ecosystem services. So like a forest has a bunch of trees. You can cut down the trees, harvest the trees that has some value to it. But the forest also provides habitat for birds. So that's an ecosystem service, but not necessarily one that's monetized, right? You can't really give it an exact value by looking at how many trees are there. And, you know, there's some methods to kind of estimate, you know, what are the importance of the trees to the bird population or other animals there. With wetlands, the main ones we like to think about are like nutrient sequesterization. So just like filtering out the water. They can also offer habitat for waterfowl and, uh, you know, other organisms that use the wetland. Those are really the main ones we focus on with wetlands. It sounds like economics is an almost easier way to really measure that, right? Because it's tangible numbers. You know, it's easier to measure things in relation to us and how we use the environment, but it might not be as easy to measure how much this bird cares about this tree in particular. It's almost a little less tangible. Yeah. And a lot of times with ecosystem services, you know, there's market and non-market services. And so the market ones are like the trees I said that can be harvested. And, you know, in the wetland, that may be like the fish that are available to eat. But realistically, with wetlands, there's not really a lot of services there. You know, you can't really put a dollar value on the amount of nitrogen that's being absorbed from the water, at least not directly. There are some methods, and that's kind of what my master's focused on, was trying to monetize some of those ecosystem services. But in general, yeah, it's really hard to say, we did this restoration project and we got five more birds. You know, that doesn't really tell us much. Right. And I think I did see something online once where it was an example of how much flood damage could be avoided if ecosystems like wetlands were restored. So that was a really nice way of putting it into a tangible economic number. But as you said, it could be difficult to do. So how did you end up using AI to help estimate those services? A little bit more background on my master's, I guess, is that we are trying to value these ecosystem services, and sometimes it can be quite hard to do that. One method we used was a hedonic pricing model. So essentially, a hedonic good in economics is a good that can be broken into many attributes. So we were able to use housing market prices near these wetlands. So if you think about you own a house on a lake, right, you pay for a certain square footage, you pay for the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, you know, the marble in the kitchen. Um, But you also pay money for that waterfront, right? And that's part of the, the price. So if you kind of control for all of the miscellaneous variables that kind of describe the house, you can then kind of piece together the the value added by the lake. 
Um, you can do a similar thing with wetlands. And in fact, that's what we did because we had housing price data for before the wetlands were constructed and after. So it's the same house and, you know, controlling for how the housing market changed, how the area changes, you can kind of piece out how much the wetland being there adds to the value. With that being said, there's a lot of information there that I don't necessarily know how it relates to a housing price. I couldn't tell you like how this school district affects the housing price, how, you know, how many bedrooms, bathrooms. And so with a statistical model, you kind of just throw them in there and you assume a lot about the relationship between the variables and your output variable, which in our case was like the housing price. Um, So with so many variables in there, it, it begs the question, like, are all of these variables actually useful? Do we really need them? Um, And so for that project, we used um, elastic net regression, which is like a combination of lasso and ridge regression, which most people don't really realize are machine learning techniques, but they are. Um, And so using that, we were able to determine, you know, the variables that actually matter uh, within our model and uh, we're able to eliminate a lot of information that wasn't really useful for predicting, um, you know, the housing prices. Could you go into those tools a little bit deeper? Like what is the lasso tool and how can you use it? Oh, um, I, I can kind of go into it a little bit more. So machine learning methods in general, it's like you're not necessarily creating a statistical model where you define like the probability of things and you try to, you know, if you're using maximum likelihood, you define the likelihood, trying to maximize the likelihood. With machine learning models, it's more so there's some relationship between, you know, our outcome variable and our predictor variables. And so you kind of just throw them in there and depending on the algorithm and the method, you know, whether it's like random forest or support vector machines, SVMs, or like neural networks, it they all have different ways of determining that relationship, right? And so Lasso is a more simplified way of doing it. It really just takes like a ordinary least squares. Um, you know, you try to minimize your residuals. And so it kind of adds a penalty term on there for how useful the information gained from the variable is. So, you know, it runs a bunch of bootstrap uh, replications, with your data and basically says, okay, of all those replications, you know, this variable was there 100% of the time. This one was there maybe 2% of the time. Here's how much information it actually gives you. Um, But what makes it a machine learning technique is that you're not trying to maximize or minimize this penalty variable. You're just, you're throwing that penalty variable in there to say, okay, if it doesn't really add a lot of information, it's a bad variable. And then you kind of just look to see which ones are considered bad or good. So you're basically using an algorithm to determine which of your variables are actually more or less relevant to the outcome. Yeah. How difficult do you think this project would have been without the use of AI? Is this something you could do just as a person looking at the data? Um, Sometimes, depending on how large your data set is, because, you know, we had housing data for Arkansas and the whole Mississippi Alluvial Valley. So all of the the states that kind of touch the Mississippi, which is quite a lot. Um, So, you know, we had over like 5 million observation points. So if we were to try and do this visually, it becomes quite difficult. But it's just a nicer way because if you do it visually and, you know, maybe this variable is not important, there's not a lot of proof behind that other than your personal feeling. And maybe, you know, you can explain it to your advisor, but you can't necessarily explain it in writing in a paper why you did it that way. So the elastic net regression allowed us to say, okay, these variables are simply just not important. So it was a much more objective and efficient way of going about the data. Yeah. And like a standard way you might look to do it as well would do like a, you could look at AIC, 
but you would have to create an individual model for every variable combination. So when we have 50 or 60 variables, all of a sudden you have a thousand models you have to make and then use AIC to compare the thousand models. Right. So, and AIC is just one of those, another tool for finding the best fit of your variables, right? Yeah. It, AIC is just a method of, if I have a bunch of models, um, you know, they all explain some portion of the variance in the data. And so AIC is just a way of comparing those models based on the number of parameters they have and then the amount of the data that they actually explain. We already talked about, you know, comparing and contrasting what this project would look like if AI were not involved. But I also wanted to touch on just the perception, the public perception of AI nowadays, because honestly, if you asked me a few years ago what I thought of AI, my first initial thought is usually iRobot, because we mm -hmm. kind of grew up with those movies where robots are going to take over the world. But now, obviously, we're living in an age where there's just so much data. Like you said, with economics, you have the problem of too much data. So we're trying to analyze all this information and it's just not as feasible to do without this type of technology. So what's your input on people feeling a little reserved about AI being such a big initiative here at UF? Yeah, I think AI certainly has its uses. And I think a lot of times AI has the ability to take the monotonous tasks out. So it's like, I don't necessarily have to, to go through and figure out with my master's, I don't have to figure out all the variable combination, combinations, run all the models, then compare all the models. I can have the computer, you know, I define a way in which it needs to compare the variables with the algorithm, and then it just kind of runs it, right? And that can be a little scary, especially as, you know, you start to use more advanced AI techniques where it gets very black boxy, is, you know, what everyone refers to it as, you know, where you, you put the data in, something happens, and then you get an output. And you have no idea how it gets the output, but the output's good and it makes sense and it helps, right? And so I think a lot of it is understanding what happens. And I think it takes, you know, if, if you've ever read one of the machine learning papers, it's a lot of stats and a lot of math. And it's fairly difficult to, to understand uh, to someone who's not familiar with that field, I guess, or doesn't have the tools to really understand what's going on under the hood. But I don't think... You know, you should have reservations about it um, right now, at least, you know, if, if iRobot starts happening, you know, I might be a little concerned. But as of right now, you know, most applications of it work as intended, whether or not you understand how it's working or not is different. But I think for the most part, you know, whenever someone uses AI in their research or, you know, UF is trying to make AI a bigger thing, it's just because, uh, you know, it offers abilities that maybe other model frameworks can't. And, and it's just useful. Right. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be that level of quality control needed. There's always going to be a person that needs to check the numbers and make sure everything's checking out. And maybe you're not personally the expert that does that. But I feel like that's where we can rely on those people that are really good with the stats and the equations to be like, yeah, that looks right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the times, just with any model, you just kind of run it. And once it's been run, you look at the output and see, does this make sense? And if it doesn't, you know, you kind of go back and, and figure out what's going wrong. Um, I think the issue becomes when people start using it and, and not doing that. So even if you don't understand how it works, you know, just using it and, and trusting the output. I don't think you should do that with any modeling, you know, whether it's AI, machine learning or, you know, just statistical models. Don't go by blind faith. Definitely go by asking yourself that logistical question of like, does this make sense? Definitely. Yeah. I wanted to loop back around to your current work. 
you're in the Florida Rivers Lab, so you're working on oyster restoration? Yeah. So my project's on oyster reef restoration, um, you know, mainly just looking at are there different ways to restore the reefs? And if so, if we use a specific way, what is our predicted outcome of how well we restore, restore the reef? My second and third chapter kind of look at restoring the reef in different ways, determining uh, what is a good outcome of restoration. You know, it could be more oysters, it could be more ecosystem services or something like that. So that's kind of what my <laughs> project's working on. Do you see yourself using similar methods from your master's for your dissertation right now, or is it kind of different? Um, it's kind of different. The nice part about economics is you have too much data. So you have a lot to work with, but it also requires a lot of decisions on how you determine which information you include and which you remove. So that's why, uh, you know, the elastic net regression was really useful there. Um, but in ecology, you're oftentimes trying to, you know, obtain more information than you have. So I don't necessarily know if it'll be useful in that regard, but you never know. It's a nice tool to have. As far as my water quality chapter of my dissertation, what we're planning on, what I'm planning on doing, I guess, <laughs> um, is we have all this, we have water quality sensors out in the estuary. You know, they collect data every hour that tell us the salinity and the temperature um, at that sensor. And so we have this really long time series of, you know, the past three years across like six sensors, 24 hours a day. So it's a lot of observations of the salinity. And so, you know, you kind of have this time series that looks a little uh, wonky and, and confusing uh, when you just consider the time series. And so the plan is to add in information about water inputs. So like, okay, was it raining? Right, you would expect either groundwater recharge into the estuary or surface runoff to go into the estuary, which may lower the salinity. Also, what was the discharge of the river coming into the system? That's gonna affect the salinity the tide, whether it's high tide or low tide. Um, and then the wind, if it's blowing wind in, blowing out, you know, there, there's a lot of factors going on. And conceptually, it, it's easy to understand how these things may add to it, right? It's like, oh, well, if the river's dumping out a lot of water, it's probably going to be less salty, right? But to actually put that in a modeling framework and say, I know the relation, you know, the relationship's linear, it's quadratic, it's cubic, I don't really know. Right. So that's a great application of machine learning where it's like, I know there's a relationship here. I just don't necessarily know the shape of it. Right. Yeah. Or how it works. Yeah. So I can use information on those variables uh, that I mentioned to kind of try and predict the salinity. And once you've predicted the salinity and I plan to do it with like a random forest and a support vector machine and a neural network, you can kind of. Uh, use what's known as an ensemble model, where you basically take all the outputs from the three different models and kind of put them together with some type of weight. And so it allows you to get an accurate prediction of what that salinity should be. And then, you know, once we figure out what the best prediction of salinity is, we can then take a step back and look at how much each variable is contributing. So you can't necessarily see the direct relationship, but I can see, oh, within my random forest, the majority of tree classifications were based off of river discharge. So river discharge, depending on what classifications pop out and you know what the rules are, it's like, oh, well, if it's over this amount, we would expect to see low salinities, right? Or, you know, if the wind direction is northeast for over two hours, we would expect to see salinity changes um, over that two hours. So it's really just trying to figure out what the relationship between all of these variables is 
without defining what the relationship is, <laughs> which is why the, the AI will be really useful there. Uh, we'll also do some statistical models, but the AI part is really there to, to drive the chapter and the statistical model is more so as a control. And just to say, okay, here's the classical way we do things. Here, here's how the AI kind of improves upon that as well as gives us more information um, on what the relationship going on here is. So you're kind of using a well-known question and changing how you get to the answer using AI. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see this then as being really applicable to future projects with oyster reef restoration in particular, or is it, could it be just broader than that? Yeah. I mean, it could be broader in the way that, you know, this framework really can apply to any, any type of models that you're doing, right? The main point of these methods, these machine learning methods, is that they are not confining your model to some structure. You know, you're saying there is a relationship between, in our case, salinity and these water inputs, but we don't know what the relationship is. You know, machine learning method, go find it. And each one finds it a different way. But that can apply to any, any ecosystem where you have these inputs and some output that you don't know the relationship. As far as oyster restoration, um, this is useful for identifying water quality trends. And in fact, salinity often gets ignored just because it, it, there's a lot of inputs that affect it. But you know, there's also other nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, chlorophyll A. There's a lot of work with algae where they do some machine learning models to look at trends in algae. Um, so it's definitely out there and, and definitely applicable to more things than just oysters. I have a tough question for you because as a scientist, everybody feels their work is important in some way. But sometimes when a scientist is working on a project, it doesn't always feel directly relevant to the public. So what would you say about this oyster project? You know, why should people care about it and how will improving the restoration efforts really affect people in that area or just in general? It really depends on who you ask on whether or not restoration is important. We dump a b lot of money into these systems to try and restore them. But at the end of the day, do we see some output from that? And, you know, some people will argue, myself included, that the fact that we are restoring the system that we broke is worth the investment. That, you know, this system was fine until some human alteration directly to the system, whether that's over, over harvesting or, you know, drawing water off the river, which then causes issues with decreased discharge. There's indirect and direct ways in which we affect these systems. And so I think it's important to, you know, once we've affected them to the point to where they start to change, I feel like that's not a super great thing. And so there's the value of that, you know, just kind of fixing what we messed up. There's also the points that, you know, we're restoring these systems because they offer some value to us. I don't want to get too political, but like with Apalachicola Bay, it's like a it got closed down and it's a very important fishery and, you know, they harvest many, many oysters from there. So the whole point of that restoration is to restore the system so that we can start harvesting oysters again. So in that point, you know, we're restoring it for some clear benefit that we get from the system. So it really just depends on, on why you're restoring it. And, you know, I feel like all restoration has good merits and, you know, it doesn't matter which way you feel about it, but it really just depends on why you're restoring it. And maybe that's why some people might not necessarily agree with the, the restoration actions. Yeah. Kind of like what we were saying earlier, when there's a clear economic value, it's almost easier to understand the motives behind restoration and conservation. 
it's one of those questions that will keep me up at night though because I'll think you know is it is today's generation burdened by the mistakes of past generations and is it our job to fix those mistakes I mean there's only so much time and resources available and that's what really drives picking projects nowadays is how relevant is this but I think it is our responsibility to an extent to figure out all right what do we really need to fix to benefit not just ourselves but then future generations yeah. Kind of like the the plague of the modern scientist. Yeah, and I think it's important, like, the process of restoration, we learn a lot about the system as well. It's very rare that we have these super famous systems that need to be restored, right? And, and any system that has issues and then needs to be restored, we first need to understand why it got messed up in the first place and how do we fix that. And through that process, we learn a lot as scientists. And so I think there's value in that. Um, and then, you know, how we actually carry out the restoration, monitoring after we've c- completed the restoration to see were we successful. If we weren't successful, how can we change things in the future? You know, there's a lot of, of research that goes into that. And I think that, yes, we're kind of fixing other people's mistakes. But, you know, in fixing those mistakes, we can learn a lot. And I think that's, that's useful. There's always knowledge to be gained. So there's no real loss there. Well, that kind of leaves us with a good point to end on, which is, do you have any lasting words for anyone that is either considering using AI in their research or is just curious to learn more about it? Where would you tell them to start thinking or experimenting? So I guess as a scientist, I feel it's always important to know how these models are being used in your field, right? So if you work on a specific issue, you know, there's probably someone out there doing machine learning with it, you know, whether it's like species distribution models and people using like random forests and SVMs to do that prediction. It always helps to to start there with something you're familiar with. You know, if you understand how the statistical model works and you see someone using a machine learning model, you can kind of, you know, use that as a starting point to say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. How are they using that machine learning method to accomplish that task? I think if you just start trying to learn the random methods without any context, it it can be quite difficult just because, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, and then we used a a random forest model. Here are the outputs. They don't really explain how they, how it works. Right. So being familiar with what it's being applied to, you can kind of try and figure out what exactly is going on, at least somewhat. So there's kind of always a trace, a paper trail of information. I mean, that's kind of how science works, right? Everybody builds on knowledge prior that somebody tried out, it worked, they wrote it down, they shared it, and now someone else can try it the same thing or change it up a little. And that's kind of that scientific thought process um, that makes information so easily shareable today. Exactly. And a lot of these methods are, you know, usable in R, or if you know, if you use Python, which I guess not a lot of people do in ecology, but Python is also very good for doing the um, machine learning methods. You know, there's tons of libraries and modules and stuff that uh, make it a lot more user-friendly. Thank you for listening to the AI in Action series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook at Streaming Science, Twitter at Streaming underscore Sci, S-C-I, and Instagram at Students Streaming Science. For more information on this episode's topic, please visit the links in the show notes. I'm your host, Bethany Gaffey, and thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.